Well, good morning. It's great to see you. It's funny how the, um, having the stream changes my habits a little bit. So yep. like that song is playing and I want to sing along. And then I'm like, yeah, and that'll be on there. We're not, doing, not, that. Yeah. We're not doing that to the humans sitting out there trying to drink <laughs> their coffee that. today. Yeah. So really great to have you here today. Brian had um, something happen that was outright fortuitous and wonderful. Every once in a while, you just know that God is smiling on you big time. So you did a wedding what, back in the spring for your sister and brother-in-law? It was in June. Okay. Uh, but so June. the in the weeks between Green Lake and day camp, I headed out to North Carolina and officiated my sister-in-law's wedding to her, um, to her now husband, who's from Australia. It was a, kind of a crazy experience because no one from Australia can come to the U.S. right now. They're on like crazy lockdown, so we're trying to like do it for the people who are there, which was like 10 people, and then, you know, everybody else is on the computer. It was kind of a ridiculous, like, experience. Like, it was, it was pretty cool um, so in they, many ways. So they but paid you in something other than money. Yeah. So they, they gave said... gave you tickets they, to a game. They said, hey, you want to go to a Cubs game on September 27th? I was like, I... September 27th? It's June. I don't know. But then they said, oh, by the way, they're playing the Cardinals. I was like, yep, put it in the calendar. Let's go. And who could have possibly known that yesterday the Cardinals would have been going for their 15th win in a row. Uh, it was unbelievable. It was the first time I've been to Wrigley in like, like inside the stadium in like five years. It's pretty, it was pretty cool. They've done a lot of things to, to make the place nice. Too bad the team stinks. Um, but I appreciate it. I appreciate it because we were able to, to get the win. That was fun. And, and then in the meantime, you know, this week, uh, the other half of your family was very excited because her team has done quite well this season, too. So yes, the Robertson so, clan is very happy about the White Sox it's, clinching. It's just so funny, because the things, the things you dream about your children, I, I just never <laughs> dreamed that my child would go marry a Sox fan and yeah. do that to our family. I'm yeah. like, sorry, Sox fans, you, you know. You'd just, almost, in your mind, you might almost call it a train wreck, which we were a part of yesterday. <laughs> our train hit a car. Guy survived, everything was all good, but we were stuck on the train for almost two hours because so we clipped the front end of a car and the bumper went under the train and everybody was like, what just happened? So yeah, little added fun to the morning. Lots, <laughs> lots of adventure, lot, lots of fun. So, well, it's uh, great to be here together on this uh, last Sunday of September and every week we send out this uh, update for you. More and more of you are signing up for that. I love that mm -hmm. because this is... This is our prime way of communicating with you. So you want to know the news of what's going on around here, make sure you get signed up for this. You can do that by either going right onto our website, go to contact, and you can sign up for it there. You can talk to the people at the Info Hub today. They'd be glad to get your name written down to get you added. And, um, and like I've said the last few weeks, part of what I love about it is that it comes complete with links so that you can go ahead and just jump straight to whatever the event is. So uh, we're here at the last Sunday of September, and once again today we've got some baptisms. Yeah. We're, not, we're not running to the river today. These are, these are clean water baptisms. <laughs> we've got dirty water baptisms and clean water baptisms. But, so the, the tank is actually set up right out in front of the gym. So if some of you, I mean, I know you're coming to first, but if you want to come back at 11.30 and celebrate with those folks uh, we'd, be, we'd be glad to have you uh, part of that event. And then again, you know, I mean, if you're still thinking about, hey, I'd, I'd love to do this, we want to make sure, we want to make sure that you get included. The river is probably on the edge of starting to cool down, but I'll tell you what, last week it was still 
mm-hmm. incredibly warm. I couldn't believe it. So anyway, we've got that. And then we've got a couple of events coming up, the event for ladies, the, the fall fest, just a, a lot of fun things happening. Yeah, the one thing I will point out about that Moments That Matter event, uh, the early bird rate goes down September 30th, which is this uh, this Thursday. So if you sign up after that, you can still register, but the price increases as they try and prepare for getting all the supplies and everything. So if you know you're going, sign up now. Sign up this week uh, because thir- on Friday, uh, the rate will, will jump up a little bit. Anything else you want your gang to know about, kids and whatever? Uh, they're all alive. They're good, all healthy. Good, and good. Uh, things are going really well. Good. So it's no, been, a, been nothing, a good fall. Nothing particular. Yeah. Good fall. Yeah. All right. Wonderful. Well, I'm going to have you read a passage of scripture this morning. Uh, from the book of Revelation. We're going to be reading Revelation chapter 20 and then breaking into chapter 21 for the first eight verses. This is the the chapter in the Bible that that talks about the the kingdom rule of Christ, talks about the millennium, and then then part of what I love is that it it talks about finally taking Satan and putting him exactly Mm -hmm. where he belongs, finally getting rid of that evil lizard once and for all and, and being free of Satan and free of sin can't wait for that day. So uh, go ahead and have you read this passage for us today. They entitled this part, The Thousand Years, and, and I don't want to throw you off, but I might stop you once or twice. We'll see. Go ahead. Roller coaster, engage. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the bottomless pit and a heavy chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that old serpent who was the devil, Satan, and bound him in chains for a thousand years. The angel threw him into the bottomless pit, which he then shut and locked so Satan could not deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were finished. Afterward, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and, people, and the people sitting on them had been given the authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony about Jesus, for proclaiming the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his statue, nor accepted his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They all came to life again, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is the first resurrection. The rest of the dead did not come back to life until the thousand years had ended. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. For them, the second death holds no power, but they will be the priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. When a thousand years comes to an end, Satan will be let out of his prison. He will go out to deceive the nations, called Gog and Magog, in every corner of the earth. He will gather them for the battle, a mighty army, as numberless as sand along the seashores. Okay, you can stop there. So this is what blows me away. You just get done with Jesus reigning for a thousand years, and it's all over, and Satan comes back and gets numerous people to follow him. How in the world, what is wrong yeah. with us that we can literally be living with perfection and still want to choose evil, still want to choose what is wrong? I mean, it just, it blows my mind away. I just, ugh, makes me crazy. Verse 9. I saw them as they went up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded God's people and the beloved city. But fire from heaven came down on the attacking armies and consumed them. Then the devil, who had deceived them, was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet. There, they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Can't be long enough. Keep going. I saw a great white throne and one sitting on it. The earth and sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. 
I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. And the books were opened, including the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead, and death and the grave gave up their dead, and all were judged according to their deeds. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. That, that part about God's home is now among his people. You know, people think about heaven and what heaven will be like and the excitement they have about their mansion, their street of gold, their whatever. Heaven is about one thing. God's there and we are very conscious of it. We're very aware of the fact that every moment we are in the conscious, visible presence of God. That's heaven. That's heaven. The one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. Then he said to me, Write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. He also said, It is finished. Heard that before. <laughs> I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit these blessings, and I will be their God. They will be my children. But cowards, unbelievers, the corrupt, murderers, the immoral, those who practice witchcraft, idol worshipers, and all liars, their fate is in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Thank you so much. And so, Father God, as we get the opportunity today to read these words from your word, uh, we are fully aware of the fact that what is stated here is, is real. This isn't fantasy or myth or, or wishful thinking. We are grateful that you came to earth a first time and that you will come again a second time. And you will rule among us with power and great glory. And even in that ruling, there will still be some people who think they know better who think they, they understand a better way. God, help us in those moments, even in this life, when for some reason we choose, we choose the wrong thing over you. We, we fall for something that we think will bring greater satisfaction than you. Bring us to our senses, God. Bring us to our senses that the, that the, only, the only thing, the only one that brings true total satisfaction is Jesus himself. And, and any other choice is a counterfeit. It's a fraud. It's, a, it's an antichrist in a way. Lord God, I pray that we would be drawn more and more toward living holy lives. And, and this morning, I, I feel moved, as, as I did the last few days, to, to pray for those people mentioned in this passage who will actually find themselves beheaded for being loyal to you. My goodness, we, we live in an era that if, if, somebody, if somebody challenges our faith or questions our beliefs or whatever, oh, we feel so downtrodden, we, you know, we take it personally and everything else. These, these people will suffer physically for your name. 
And I pray that you will give them, you will give them the courage in that moment to stand strong, to not back down, to not allow cowardice or convenience to be the thing that causes them to melt in the face of tremendous adversity. So God, I pray today, though, though that day may be a long, long time away, I pray for those folks. Give them the strength and courage that they need in that moment. In the name of Jesus, amen. So we've been involved in a series uh, that is answering a question. And the question is, is this the end? Have we come to the end of all things? Michelle, can you give me that? Thank you so much. Is this the end? Are we, are we done? And, and we've looked at this for, for a few weeks, trying to understand with, with all that's going on in our world, you know, what's happening, what's happening on a more cosmic level, what, what, what exactly is going on? I hope that so far we've done a, a good job helping to answer some of those questions. And, and today we're, we're actually going to a message that as you look at it, you may wonder why in the world we didn't start with this one instead of end with it. Uh, we're going to spend some time talking about uh, apocalyptic language. We're just going to we're going to talk about some of the terms, some of the some of the words that are important to understand as you as you study the end times. It may be that you're involved in a in a conversation with somebody, or you know you're involved in a in a small group, whatever it might be, and people start talking about this, and you know they're talking pre, mid, post, and all this stuff, and you're kind of like, eh, I don't know what's going on here. So giving giving you some basic handles, I think, uh, could be helpful. This isn't simply a knowledge sermon. It's not just to fill your bank with definitions or something like that. I do believe that all the knowledge we receive from the Word of God is given to us for the intention of life change. It's given to us for the intention of transformation. And we know that the transformative element of having a greater understanding of what will happen at the end is it helps us to live more holy and godly lives today. So one of the things I want to uh, just kind of preface this whole conversation with is, uh, is this topic in particular and the way so many people, especially Christians, handle this topic. There are a lot of Christians who are, who are just incredibly fascinated by end time stuff. I mean, this is, this is their wheelhouse. They, they love dissecting it. They love understanding it. They love ripping it apart. Man, if they, if they hear there's going to be a sermon on the end times, or there's a new book on the end times, they're out, they're grabbing it, they're eating it up. They're almost, they're almost a little bit obsessed with it. Maybe you know someone like that. Maybe you are that person, but you're, you're into it. And, and, you know, it never fails when we're sitting in a small group and asking, what would you like to study next? Inevitably, at least one person says, I want to study the end times. I want to know what's coming. I think there's a healthy curiosity there to try to understand what's coming in the end. What happens, though, a lot of times that I see is that, that people who study it and, and really get into it big time, in time, form opinions. They form strong opinions. They form, they form perspectives that they believe they have finally, they've figured it out. You know, they, they've turned the tumblers. They, they've got it all figured out. And anybody that has a different perspective, they look at them like they're a rube or a fool. How in the world can you, come on, it's clear, it's here. Now, Jesus himself says, I don't know the day or hour I'm coming back, but I have friends who know when Jesus is coming back. They've figured it all out. And, and, I, and I think it's really important when we're approaching this to approach it with an understanding that there are things we cannot figure out here. We will know in hindsight the way it all turned out. 
This is one of those areas. When it comes to salvation, we don't do a, you have your way, I have my way. Jesus is the only way. He said it. But when Jesus says, I'm not sure how this turns out, the Father will let us know, I'm with Jesus. And so I want to encourage you, you know, as you're involved in studying and someone has a different perspective than you on the end times, not to just write them off. The church I grew up in was pre-tribulational and pre-millennial. You'll understand that a little bit more in a moment if you don't. Pre-tribulational, pre-millennial, and here was their perspective. If you were not pre-trib, if you were not pre-mill, you were not an Orthodox Christian. Boom, we're done with you. That is not the perspective of our church. That is not the pathway we take. And even when somebody offers this topic in a small group, I always begin the conversation with them to say, don't you dare. Don't you dare walk into that group and present your perspective as if it is the only perspective, the only right perspective, and everybody else is wrong until they come to your side. We walk in humility with this. We absolutely walk in humility. So this morning, I'm telling you, I'm not going to spend a lot of time telling you my position, which might irritate some of you because you want to know what you think. No, you figure out what you think. You, fi you study the scriptures and you figure out what you think. Uh, there are a few that I'll probably hint. I can't help it. But nonetheless, here we are. So I, I titled this apocalyptic language. Uh, originally, I was going to call it prophetic language, and I started to have a suspicion, and it's funny because the suspicion got confirmed in my conversation with my guys Thursday morning. I asked them about their background on prophecy, and as they started talking, I realized that apocalyptic was a far better word. So prophetic language, when we talk prophecy, a prophet had two jobs in, in the Bible. And a prophet was to foretell and to foretell. They were predict an event coming in the future, and they were to proclaim a message. They would predict this is what will happen next week or in a month or a year or, or in, in the distant future. They would predict. And not only would they predict this will happen, but then they had a proclamation, thus saith the Lord, repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. So they would do both of these things. There was a prediction as well as a proclamation. And the reason for the prediction was to confirm the validity of the person making the proclamation. So if I say this is what God says, you're like, well, who are you? Well, I'll tell you what, in three days, lightning bolt is going to hit the top of your house, your house is going to split in half, and it's going to burn. And it does, you go, <laughs> he might be of God. If it doesn't happen, you can say he's not of God, and guess what? With, with prophets, there was no batting average. It was 100% or you were false. So this was their way of affirming that the message was true. Here's the thing. I don't have to do that. Because when I say Jesus is the only way to heaven, I don't have to say, and in three days, a giant acorn will grow in the middle of our yard. I can say, John 14, 6 says it. The, the canon was not complete. Scripture was not complete. And so they needed a way of affirming the message. And this is how they affirmed it. So as you look at prophecy, Prophecy really falls in one of three categories. One is prophecy that's already been fulfilled. You look at the book of Isaiah. Virgin will conceive and bear a son. You will call his name Emmanuel. Jesus, born in Bethlehem. There he is. We have a lot of prophecy that is already fulfilled. Then you have the whole concept of a prophetic word or, or a person with a, with a gift of prophecy or even just preaching prophetically. There is a difference between teaching 
and prophetic preaching. Prophetic preaching is that bold, thus saith the Lord. A lot of times, it's in your face, it's kind of abrasive, and it's just, it's there. It's a hard message. And then, of course, the third is end times conversations. So, so rather than saying prophecy and having the possibility of seeing it go in other directions, we're talking about apocalyptic language today, language that talks specifically about the end times. The theological term for end time studies is eschatology. Ends with that ology on there. Theology, ecclesiology is the study of the church. Eschatology is the study of last things or end things. That word esco at the beginning is from eschaton, Greek work eschaton, that means end, last, or final. Logi or logos, it's the wor- a word or, or more, more literally, the word. It's the definitive word on this topic. So eschatology is the definitive word on the last times. As we move into this, the first thing I want to look at is how do different people understand, how do they interpret the book of Revelation? Because there's more than one way of interpreting it. But the funny thing is, before we get there, I want to do something really picky. I want to talk about how Revelation is pronounced. This is going to help you a lot. And by the way, it's still Revelation, don't worry. But every once in a while I'll be talking to somebody and they say, well, I was studying the book of Revelations. Or in Revelations, it says this. Or Revelations, it says that. It's not plural. It's a singular word. It's the book of Revelation. And this matters, all right? It doesn't just matter because I'm obsessed with English or something like that. It matters because it's not a collection of revelations. It's a singular revelation. And it says it in the first five words of the book. The revelation of Jesus Christ. The book is about revealing Jesus It's not about revealing ten horns and seven bowls and all this. It's about revealing who Jesus is. And so when when John says this is the book of Revelation, it is literally entitled the Revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a singular revelation. We're not going there to figure out all kinds of fascinating things. We're going there to get to know Jesus better. That's the purpose of the book. So, how is Revelation interpreted? What are, the, what are the different ways that people approach this book? I'm going to give you three basic interpretations. I think the book we recommended has four interpretations. Uh, one, two of them kind of smashed together in one. So I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you the three. The three are, you have the extremes. Allegorical, allegorical on one side. Literal on the other side, and in the middle you have the preterists, which sound really cool. Sounds like a praying mantis. But anyway, you have the allegorical, literal, and the preterists. Allegorical, you understand allegory, right? Allegory is this beautiful work of art. It's, it's a story, it's a picture, and nothing about it is true or real. Uh, Paul Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's... Pro- Paul? John. John Bunyan. Paul, John. Oh, it gets so mixed up. One of them has an axe. Anyway, um, wrote Pilgrim's Progress. And Pilgrim's Progress is a story about a guy named, named Pilgrim. And all the characters in the book are named things like Wrath and Envy. And they're given these names. And they're given the names to depict what the person was all about. Allegories can be subtle, but they can also be kind of right there in your face. And their person, purpose is to tell a story, to give a moral, to give an idea behind the meaning. In a way, parables are, are rather allegorical, aren't they? There's nothing about a parable that is real in terms of it's not a real story. It's a story used in order to convey a spiritual message. There are a lot of people who look at the book of Revelation and they say it's completely allegory. 
There's nothing about it that's true or real in the sense of events or timing or anything like that. It is a, it is a story with the purpose of getting across a spiritual message, and the spiritual message is we are caught up in a cosmic battle, and someday it'll end. That's what it's all about for them. I asked my group on, on Thursday morning, why it is that it seems like, if you come from a Catholic background, they don't talk a lot about the book of Revelation, especially in terms of end times in the Catholic Church. What's that all about? Here's my theory, and I, and I think it's valid. The Catholic Church does, it, it views the book of Revelation as being allegory. Allegory. It's a story with the purpose of getting across that we are involved in a cosmic battle and one day, the battle will be won by God himself. So you have an allegorical interpretation. The other extreme is a very literal interpretation. And there are degrees of literal. So by literal, there is nobody that literally takes every word of the book of Revelation at face value. If, it, if it's clearly a picture, people understand that it's a picture. Much like when Jesus says, I am the door, nobody's looking at that door right over there and saying that's Jesus. They understand it's a picture, similes, metaphors, figures of speech. We get that. But where it can be taken literally, we take it literally. So when you look at chapter 1 of the book, John is told by, by, by Jesus, write these things you have seen, those that, that are and those that will take place later. So, so he's supposed to write these things down. And, and for those that take the word literally, revelation literally, part of that literal interpretation is to actually look at it as a chronological book that events are happening chronologically. So, so we have John speaking about the churches in chapter 1. Chapter 2 and 3, he lists seven churches, and there are those who, who take it literally to say those are literally the seven different stages of the health of the church throughout the church age. And then comes the church of Laodicea, and that's the last one. And chapter 4 starts, and John is called up to heaven, and people see that as calling up of the rapture, and it just keeps on unfolding literally we have the tribulation we have the millennium we have the final judgment and we ultimately have the new heaven and the new earth so it's taken in a more literal sense the middle group are the preterists preterists take the book of revelation as a statement on history again they look at this look at the things that have happened and the things that are to take place and they see the majority of the book of revelation as having already been fulfilled they saw that as as predicting what was going to be happening to jerusalem in 70 a.d there was a lot that was already fulfilled through events that took place in the early life of the church so those are the three basic interpretations of the book and and i will say on this we tend toward literal. We tend toward literal. We tend toward a more literal interpretation of the book of Revelation. So as you're looking at the book of Revelation, what comes next? What's next? Well, well next we're basically looking at the tribulation. Once this is done, the tribulation takes place. That, that seven-year period, if you're going literally in terms of the numbers, that seven-year period of utter destruction on the face of the earth. Uh, many refer to this as Daniel's 70th week. If you look at Daniel chapter 9, 
It, it talks about the idea that, that there are a number of years that were to take, a number of weeks that were to take place before the coming Messiah, a number more, and, and all of them add up to 69, and there's this 70, 70th week still hanging out there. And that 70th week also talked about in Daniel chapter 12 is a reference to this final week, this final week known as the tribulation that's yet to come. When you're looking at the tribulation, it basically happens in two halves. The first half is a, is a season of relative peace. I say relative because it's still going to be uh, not a great time to be on the earth, all right? We could describe what we're in right now as relative peace. And you go, wait, what? Yeah, exactly. And so relative peace. But somewhere around the middle, there's a releasing of God's wrath. And the next three and a half years are not pleasant at all. They are death and destruction like crazy. Just absolutely, absolutely intense. So if you go over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, Paul talks about this time of tribulation. He talks about the revealing of the man of lawlessness. This man of lawlessness will reveal the, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself and calls himself God, seats himself in the temple, calling himself God. In verse 6 says, And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he gets out of the way. A lot of different interpretations on what the restraint is. But a lot of people, and we included, believe that the restrainer is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is what restrains evil right now. And when the Spirit is removed, when the Spirit is taken out of the way, now evil has full reign. So this season of tribulation, this season of the man of lawlessness, does not happen until there's a removing, a removing of the Spirit. Now, removing of the Spirit, people then go, okay, if, if the Spirit is removed, the church has to be removed, for the Spirit is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And so this is where we start getting into the concept of a rapture. And the rapture has some association with the tribulation. One of the most beautiful passages, uh, I love this passage, read it at every funeral. It, it got me through the death of my, my best friend when he was 14. We don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep, dead. That you do not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died, those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. He's saying, Jesus told me this directly. I'm not just making this up. That we will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. And he ends by saying, please encourage each other with these words. He says in another place, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall not all die. Not every human being will die. 
but we will all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and then we will be changed. So many people believe that these two passages are a reference to this, to this event called the rapture. I'll give you a few words that just kind of help us through this. If you were to go back to the Greek Bible and look for the word rapture, you're not going to find it. It's not there. There is no word rapture. There's the concept of rapture. So in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we see the word parousia. Parousia is a simply a reference to his coming. And it's a reference to anytime Jesus is coming, the word parousia is used. But the word we're looking at in this passage is chapter 4, verse 17, harpazo, which, is, which means we're caught up. There's a catching up. When you go over to Latin Vulgate, so the Greek New Testament was, originally tra- or was, was eventually translated into Latin, which was the primary use text of the time. They used this word rapio, and from rapio, that's where we get our word rapture. I also gave you a you know, classic symbol from the 70s that gives you an idea. That's not a fish hook, and, and you're hoping to catch a fish. That's Jesus coming from the sky, meeting us in the air. We come, we meet Jesus in the clouds. So as you look at the tribulation, there are a handful of, uh, or rapture, there are a handful of interpretations as to when the, the rapture will take place. There's pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, and pan-trib. Pre-trib means that Jesus will come before the tribulation begins. I'm calling it mid-trib for the moment. It happens at about the middle of the tribulation. Post-trib, it happens in the end. Pan-trib, I have no idea. It'll all pan out in the end. Hopefully, we're all a little bit there. We're all a little bit there that we can hold our position loosely enough to say, I'm going to go with whatever God decides, but I'm also going to try to figure it out. I'm going to investigate. So pre, mid, post In more recent days, mid-trib has been referred to as pre-wrath because there was a realization that it doesn't happen at the very dividing split middle. They didn't want as much of an emphasis on literal timing as the fact that there will come a point that the wrath of God will be poured out and when the wrath of God will be poured out, the spirit will be removed. And so there's this recognition of a pre-trib rapture, a pre-wrath rapture, or a post-trib rapture. Four major factors that you've got to figure through as you're trying to understand this is the church present for persecution. Now, a lot of pre-tribbers, their perspective is God would never make us go through that. And i got to admit to you, I find that perspective troubling because God has let a lot of people go through a lot of bad things. Why would he spare us? Right? The idea somehow that being spared of suffering is proof of God's love Count it all joy when you face trials of many kinds because you know the trying of your faith develops perseverance. If pre-trib is simply an escape hatch, I don't want anything to do with it. That's not what it's about. It's about the spirit being removed from the world so that the tribulation can begin. Is the church present for the persecution? Pre-wrath says church will be removed just before the intensity of wrath. Post-trib says you're going to be here through the whole thing. So when is the spirit removed? When is the spirit restrained? Pre, mid, post. When does the wrath begin? When does the wrath get poured out? Scripture really seems to indicate somewhere around the middle. 
Is the tribulation literal or figurative? Here's the thing. If you believe in an allegorical interpretation of Revelation, you believe that we're in the tribulation right now. Ironically, you also believe we're in the millennium right now. That the reign of Christ in the heart is happening, that's the millennium. And the presence of evil and Satan is happening, and that's the tribulation. And all those things are happening right now, and at some point, God's going to say ball game over, and it'll be done. So you either believe it more literally that this is an event in a time, or it's more of a spiritual understanding of a walk in Christ. Let's go on to the word millennium. Millennium refers to the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. Again, if you're interpreting it literally, you think it means a thousand years. If you're a little bit more figurative, you're saying, well, thousand means a long time. If you're going allegorical, you're saying there's no physical reign of Christ whatsoever. It's just the reign of Christ in the hearts of women and men. The millennium is, uh, it happens after the tribulation, as you look at the timeline of Scripture. And it also happens before the end of everything, before, before the final judgment and before the world is destroyed. It's the rule of Christ on earth. An amazing time. And it's a time in which Satan is bound. In, in many ways, it's kind of a return to Eden. It's a return to Eden. We have the reign of God among us, and Satan is nowhere to be found. The slithering snake is in the bottomless pit. So what are the perspectives on the millennium? Pre, post, ah. Pre means that the second coming of Christ will take place before the millennium begins. Now, understand, the, the rapture is not the second coming. The second coming is when Jesus puts his foot on the ground. That's the second coming of Jesus. So if you're premillennial, you believe that Jesus is coming back to earth, foot on the ground, at the beginning of the thousand years. Postmillennial tends to have a more spiritual view of the millennium, and so Jesus comes back when it's all done. He still comes back, but he comes back after the thousand years. Amillennial, when you see that little A, A, in front of a lot of spiritual words, it means not. It's a prefix for not. Not millennial. There will be no millennium. And so many believe, again, in, a, in, a, in an allegorical interpretation that there is no physical thousand-year reign of Christ it's simply the fact that Jesus ruled in the hearts of people, and at some time God says, I'm done. Come to heaven. Let's go. So what are the major factors in understanding this? Again, we have to ask the question, is the millennium literal or figurative? And what is the purpose of Christ's kingdom on earth? Why does he have to come back and be here for a thousand years? Why not just go to heaven and get it all over with? Why do we have to have this thousand years? you got to think through that question. And part of the question is, does the millennium in some way relate to the nation of Israel? Is there something that God still has to fulfill prophetically in relationship to Israel that's not fulfilled yet? So one of the things that is not fulfilled in Scripture is the promise given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 of what the boundaries of Israel will be. In Genesis 15, God says to Abraham, your seed will rule from the great river of Egypt to the Euphrates River. It'll rule this, I mean, you see it there. It'll rule this whole area. Israel right now is, is the little purple spot right next to Jordan. You can see that's a far cry from the promise of God. 
And so many believe that a piece of the millennium is the fulfillment of that promise that Israel will finally have that whole expanse of land. Let me go through some other terms you need to know prophetically, apocalyptically. Bottomless pit. So that's at the beginning of the millennium. Satan is bound, thrown in for a thousand years. This guy is falling. Boom. He's out of, he is out of the sight of human beings. Armageddon is the battle that takes place after the millennium where Satan brings all the people that rebel against God and, and it's, it's one of the quickest battles in human history. Jesus breathes, it's over. I have bottomless pit twice. I was fascinated by the bottomless pit. Okay, meant to change that. Judgment seat of Christ. Judgment seat of Christ is, this, is the season that we as believers will stand before Christ and give an account for what we've done in this life. Here's the great thing about the judgment seat of Christ. There will be nobody that stands at the judgment seat of Christ and Jesus will say, whoops, you don't belong here, get out. Every person there is there because they've trusted in Christ as the forgiver of their sin and the leader of their life. And it's a conversation about how we use the life that God gave us. On the other hand, the great white throne judgment, that's the judgment that takes place of those who never came to believe. In fact, it makes reference to the book of life. The people whose names were not found in the book of life were cast into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the final destination of Satan, beast, the false prophet, and everybody who has chosen not to believe in Jesus. And I wanted to put that word last days up there finally, just because for us, we think we're living in the last days, and here's what's ironic and beautiful. So did Paul, so did Peter, so did John. The last days began when Jesus left. Basically, the last days began as soon as Jesus was out and out back to heaven, and people have been looking for his appearing ever since. And that's part of the beauty of the concept of the imminent return of Christ. It could happen at any moment. Paul, Peter, and John literally believed it could have happened to them. And we believe it could happen to us. And it very well could. So a couple of things to close. Single greatest tool for understanding the end times. Is there a book? Is there a person? Is there, what's the single greatest tool for studying the end times? Humility. Humility. Please, if you're going to study the end times, walk in humility. The humility of when, when, when these things are referred to as a mystery, mystery means there are some things we can't figure out and that's okay. And God the Father loves us living in the tension of mystery. That's not a bad thing. We walk in humility in the way we approach the scripture. We walk in humility in the way we treat each other. Kim and I, in 1985, have been dating. We're moving toward getting married. And uh, I wanted to understand from my youth pastor back home a little bit more about my wife's, soon-to-be wife's, uh, church background. She came from a, a church background that was called Baptist Journal Conference. And at that present time, her, her family was attending a place called the Evangelical Free Church. Baptist General Conference and Evangelical Free were not on my radar at all. I went to, the, to a denomination that we basically believed we were the only people going to heaven, so who cared who anybody else was, right? So I go to my youth pastor, and I say, okay, I'm mar- I want to marry this girl, and, and she's got a Baptist General Conference and Evangelical Free background. Tell me about that. And he kind of gives me a, ooh. And I'm like, oh, no, she's a cult member. What's going on? And he says, you know, here's the thing about those churches. On a Sunday morning, a person that is pre-trib 
and mid-trib and post-trib could be sitting side by side and they wouldn't have a problem with that. Now, you may think I'm bold, brass, brazen, and, and kind of a jerk. I was very polite. I just sat there and went, okay. And inside I was saying, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that that's beautiful. The ability to walk in humility and say, this is the way I see it. And you see it differently, and it'll all pan out in the end. In the end, we're going to know. And I think in the end, we're all going to go, we got it a little wrong. And maybe we got it a little right. Walk in humility. Finally, as you look at this series overall, four aspects of our response to the end times, to the question is at the end, all of these things. The first is to study truth, soak up truth, and stand stand strong in truth. We've got to be, we've got to have our noses in the Word of God. We've got to be absorbing truth. Folks, there, you are being propagandized minute by minute. Every time you turn on a station, radio station, go to a site, whatever, you are being propagandized constantly. And the only way to counteract that propagandization is this. Nose in the truth. It's only when you know the truth that you're going to listen to the propaganda and go, something don't smell right. But if you don't have the truth to compare it to, you're going to fall for every stinking lie. Study the truth. Soak up the truth. Stand strong in truth. Here's the other part. Recognize where we have embraced futile thinking and repent. There are some areas that we bought into the lies of the world. We bought into the religion of postmodern secularism. We bought into it. We bought into a lot of the lies. We need to repent of futile thinking and turn back to the truth. Further, as I've said almost every week, we need to gather regularly with like-minded biblical thinkers. You need some people in your life who have their nose in the book too. We're searching the scriptures together to understand what God has to say to us. And finally, we've got to protect our children from futile-minded thinkers. We are handing over our kids to satanic thinking and hoping they come out okay. We've got to be aware of the places we're handing over our kids and what's being said to them and what's being taught to them and what's being dripped into them. We've got to be aware of it and we've got to counteract it. I don't want to be fatalistic and say, or there will be no next generation because God will always preserve a remnant. But we can lose a lot of kids in the meantime because we're just selling over their souls for the sake of convenience to whatever in the moment. Here, have the iPad. I'm I'm not in the mood to deal with you right now. And the drip, drip, drip is taking place in their brain. Protect your children from futile mind thinkers. Is this the end? I hope so. I really do. I do. I can't wait. I can't wait to see Jesus. Can't wait can't wait to be done with the sin-soaked world. I can't wait, and I suspect you can't either. In preparation for communion, I want to look at these words from the Apostle Peter. He said, you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand is like a day. 
The Lord is really not being slow about his promise, as some people think. He's not being slow in his return. No. He is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed. He wants everyone to repent. But the day of the Lord will come unexpectedly as a thief, that the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire, and the earth and everything in it will be found to deserve judgment. Since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives you should live, looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. On that day, he will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away with flames. But we are looking forward to a new heaven, a new heavens and a new earth as he has promised a world filled with God's righteousness. And so, dear friends, while you are waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives and are pure and blameless in his sight. Studying prophecy as an end in itself is a waste of time. Studying apocalyptic language and literature for the sake of transformation is exactly the purpose for which God designed it. He designed it that we might live holy and blameless lives, that we might be motivated to live in a holy way. And so as we walk to communion today, two tables at the front, one at the back, one by the door, gluten-free on the side stage as well as, as well as the other back table. Think today about the ways that, that the understanding of the end motivates you. Does it motivate you toward holy living? Because that's the purpose for which Jesus gave it to us. So God in heaven today, I thank you for a greater understanding of your word but let us not land with understanding. Let it motivate transformation in Jesus' name. I've had this picture really going through my mind all morning long of uh, believers gathered during this time of tremendous tribulation and persecution. And the song for the morning is, I raise a hallelujah. And they're having to whisper, saying it, to not get caught. Or would they? But they just blast it out. We don't understand what a tremendous privilege we've been handed in America to be free to express our faith. We don't get it. We just don't. This gift has been so with us for so long that we just, pff, everybody has this, Right? No, everybody doesn't. Everybody doesn't. It is a gift that we need to embrace. You know, I don't care if you can sing or not, man. Scream out that song with the most horrible voice in the world. We have the privilege of doing it. We have the freedom to do it. We have the protection to do it. And if in seasons of soft tyranny, we give up those freedoms, don't be surprised when this one's taken away too. We need to stand strong now. We need to sing out now. And so, Father, give us courage to live out loud. In every possible way, to sing a little louder. To let the world know about the Jesus on the inside. He's not just a Sunday morning thing that I go do. Oh, no, no. He's with me every day. And I live him, and I love him, and I serve him. He is mine, and I am his. Thank you for the freedom to sing really loud to you. 
In Jesus' name, amen. We'll see you next week.